that. We're going to get into the Word. We're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Your announcements will come at the end of the service. Um, there will be no midweek devotional next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. Uh, we're going to open, what is that? I think it's the 11th. We're going to open the sanctuary on Wednesday evening. We're going to do our midweek devotional from the sanctuary. And so if you want to come and sit and be a part of that, be a part of the teaching of God's Word, you can be here. We're going to have some refreshments in the fellowship hall after. Uh, bring your, go, go by the ATM and get some cash out because we're going to have fellowship downstairs and the youth are going to do a fundraiser. They're going to have a bake sale, some goodies. So those will be available down in the basement. Bring your, your uh, uh, either some cash or your checkbook. Uh, and I do think they also have capability of taking a card, I believe. But we'll have a, a fundraiser for our youth. And then the following three Wednesdays, we'll have some free refreshments for you guys. And then the fifth Wednesday, we'll have another bake sale for, for the youth group. So raise a little bit of money for our youth. All right, Gospel of John, chapter 19. And uh, we're going to begin to read in verse 33. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 33. And it reads like this. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. And that's the operative word for the day, believe. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture in Psalm 34 and verse 20, should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. You think of all that Jesus suffered on the cross. None of his bones were broken, fulfilling the prophecy in Psalm 34 and 20. And again, another scripture says, and this is Zechariah 12 and 10, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And so in this, these two Prophetic words are fulfilled. In verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by, na- by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen and with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so they, bear, they, they laid Jesus, there they laid Jesus because the Jews because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. I want to speak to you today about identifying with a dead man. What was it that made these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who I'll call Nick at night, (laughs) 
These, you have to realize, these are prominent men in the Jewish culture. They are religious leaders. They are a part of the religious elite. They are Pharisees. They both sat on the Sanhedrin, as history tells us. What, what caused them to put their status in, in their culture on the line to go and identify with a dead man whose movement seemed to be over. I mean, this is the leader of the movement. He's dead, and they're still choosing to be a part of this movement. What is it that would cause these men to do this? We're going to look at, in particular, today, the life of Nicodemus. I want to read in John chapter 3 the story of, Jesus, of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. So beginning in verse 1, John 3, 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say unto you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there's a great passage here that we've read that is, um, really gives us a lot of detail uh, about Salvation and, and men have done a lot with this passage. It's often twisted to give various meanings of what is necessary to be saved. Some would say that when he talks about being born of the water and born of the Spirit, that, 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 he's, that, that Jesus is, is teaching you've got to be baptized in water and you've got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Some people, you've got to, and that, they, that would be their definition of being born of the water and born of the Spirit. If you study this, and I've been studying it for 24 years, studying this passage of Scripture, and this idea, and I, I've, I've come to this conclusion. I actually came to this conclusion 24 years ago. Actually, David Cook, in our Life of Christ class, he put us all to the test, and we had to go and we had to research this. What was Jesus teaching when you, he said you've got to be born of the water and born of the Spirit? And he made us all go and research this as a part of the Life of Christ class. This was my conclusion. What Jesus is saying is you've, you've got to be born of a woman, born of the water, and born of the Spirit. He talks about the physical birth. And he talks about spiritual birth. In fact, in verse 6, he explains that. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's explaining his own parable in that statement. 
We talk about what's the first thing that, that, what's the indicator? When do we rush our wife to the hospital? When what happens? The water breaks, right? We are born of water, and then we have to be, if we're going to see the kingdom of God, born of the Spirit. There's an old Jewish proverb that says this. It says, he who is born once dies twice. They will experience the second death. But he who is born twice is, will die once. If we are born again, we will not taste the second death. And that's what Jesus is teaching here to Nicodemus. Let's read on in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And that, that's actually the term through history in, in, in this time that, that Nicodemus was, was given. He was known as the teacher of Israel. He was the most prominent rabbi in all of Israel. That was the name given to him. And he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you that we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not believe or witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from earth, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You remember when Moses was in the wilderness and they were plagued with this sickness, when he would lift up that serpent on the staff, what would happen? Whoever looked at it would be saved from the sickness, right? It's a picture of the cross. If we look at the cross and we believe, and it's as simple as that, we believe. If we look at the cross and we come to faith, a saving faith, I believe it's as simple as that. It's, it's as simple as believing. Now, I don't believe in easy believism. Oh, yeah, I believe that, and you go your way, and you, there, there's no life transformation. There's no indication that you have truly been born again. I believe there is a faith unto salvation, and it's as simple as that. When we truly come to a place where all of our confidence is put on what Jesus has done for us at the cross, that settles our eternal destination. And it transforms everything about who we are. We are born again at that moment of belief. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. None of us can be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes. The Holy Spirit has to open our understanding. The Holy Spirit has to do a work in our hearts for us to be saved. Let me ask you a question. What did you do to be born? You had nothing to do. That was the work of your mama and your daddy. You had nothing. to. You just showed up. And the reality is there's nothing you can do to be saved either. That's a picture that Jesus is showing us. And Jesus, you think about this, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who has been teaching salvation by works, the works of the law. And Jesus is saying to this Pharisee, your works are not going to get you in. You've got to come to a place where you believe upon the Son of God. 
That's what Jesus is teaching here. He goes on to one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3 and 16. It used to be in the field goal, uh, in, in the end zone when I was a kid. You'd see it every time they kicked a field goal. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 on his eye black in a football game, and I don't know if it still is, but when he did that, the most Googled thing in history was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That verse is in the context of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, who has asked him, what must a man do to be born again? You've got to believe. And if you believe, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. That's the world that we live in today, right? People love darkness because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light least his deeds should be exposed, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they may be, uh, that, that they have been done in God. So Jesus makes it very clear. It's in believing. Let me ask you a question. What do you have to do to be lost? Nothing. Absolutely Nothing. If you haven't come to faith in Christ, you're lost. The Bible teaches very clearly. We're going to go through some scriptures here in a minute that will demonstrate this. But scripture teaches very clearly that no one can be saved by the deeds of the flesh. None of us. You could spend the rest of your life doing good deeds. And it wouldn't be enough to save you from your sin. We are dead. The Bible states that outside of Christ, apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. Period. Every single one of us. Well, I, no, I've been a pretty good person. No, you are a wretch. I was a wretch. We are all wretches. Apart from Jesus, we are a mess. We are dead in sin and trespasses. Every single one of us. None of us are exempt from that. The Bible teaches us that. It says there is none who is righteous. Not even one. Not one. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he lives a life, the Bible teaches, without sin. 33 years on this planet without sinning. Lived a perfect, blameless life. And then he, the sinless lamb of God, went and died for us sinners. No greater love has any man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. And that's what Jesus did for us. The just for the unjust. He died in our place. 
Amen? He died, he tasted death, so that we could experience the life of God. And there is no way that you can experience the life of God outside of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. There's no way that we can be saved apart from him. Amen? None of us are good enough. We will never be saved by good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, it says, For by, by, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, least any, anyone should boast. It is not by works. I could spend the rest of my life trying to do good deeds. They would now not outweigh my bad deeds. That's a reality. That's a reality for all of us. But it's through, uh, through faith, by grace, that we are saved. And then uh, the next verse says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before that we should walk in them. So we need to understand this. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we can gain merit to, to achieve. Salve, salvation is a gift to be received. It is not an accomplishment to be achieved. What do we have to do to be saved? Come to belief. It's a belief that transforms everything about who we are. Saving faith. It changes us. It transforms us. It, it, like, like, a, like the butterfly, it takes the, the, uh, this warm through the cocoon of the tomb of Jesus, and out on the other side comes the butterfly. New life. That's the picture of our salvation. And it's a gift. It's, it's, it's not anything that we can do. All we have to do is bow our knee to Christ Jesus, surrender our lives, come to a saving faith, come to a place of belief, and that settles it. And then we move from there. See, a lot of us, we want to work for our salvation. We can't do it. God hasn't called us to work for our salvation, but he has called us to work from our salvation. See, until you're saved, there's no good thing in you. Until the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence on the inside of you, no matter how good you think your deeds are, they will fall short. One man said it this way. He said, when I, when, I, when I came to Jesus, I repented of my bad deeds, and I repented of all the bad motives that I had for doing the good deeds that I did. And that basically sums up our state outside of Christ. God's called us not to work for our salvation, but he has called us to work from our salvation. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we have been saved. Philippians chapter 2, and, and, and let's just go back to that last part of this, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see that? When we have been saved by grace through faith, we are then the workmanship of God created under, in Christ Jesus for good works 
And God has prepared, prepared these things for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So now our life is walking out the things that God has prepared for us to do, the good deeds that God has ordained from the foundation of the world that we would do. You know that it was God's plan from the beginning for you to do good deeds, to do the work of Christ on planet Earth. I believe in predestination to this degree that every human being that was created on planet Earth was created to be found in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the only place that it's ever mentioned in Ephesians. It says that we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. What, so, you know what, I, I, I say this and it drives my, I have a lot of Calvinist friends, it drives them nuts. The will of God is seldom done on planet Earth. Oh, the will of God be done. You know, the will of God is very seldom done on planet Earth. It's not God's will for you to beat your wife. It's not God's will for you to be strung out on drugs. It's not the will. This is scripture. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of everlasting life. But every day, men die not having come to a place of saving faith. They die outside of the will of God. God has created us for good works. Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, look at this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless Children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you have been born again, this is the life that God's called you to. To daily work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he says we should do everything without complaining. How many of you need a good dose of complaint relief without disputing some of us need our fuses cut off stop disputing that you would be blameless harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world alright so we've made two main points here so far Salvation, number one, salvation is a gift to be received and not an accomplishment to be achieved. Number, number two, it's not God's intent that we would work for our salvation. Jesus has already done the work. But he intends for us to work from our salvation. All right, so let, let's, let's circle around. Let, let's come back to topic. Our topic today is identifying with a dead man. What was it? that made Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man, very prominent man, and Nicodemus. Now these men, as I said, they were both spiritual leaders in Israel. They, were, they both sat on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish religious, re- religious council. History tells us they were both members of the Sanhedrin. What was it 
that made these men put their status in society in jeopardy in the eyes of Israel. You have to realize that the religious leaders in Israel hated Jesus. They sought to kill him. They sought to kill him. In fact, in John chapter 7, there's an instance where they're seeking, they bring Jesus for judgment, but Nicodemus actually stands up for Jesus. And he says, is it right that we should judge him without a hearing of the law? I mean, we should at least measure, if we're going to put him to go after him, if we're, going to, if we're after the, if, out for blood with this man, shouldn't we at least measure him against the law, which is right? That's the normal, normally the way we practice, where we're just going to go after this guy and take him out. And his peers mock him, deride him. So are you also a Galilean? Has any great prophet ever risen out of Galilee? They're mocking him. They're chiding Nicodemus. What we see in, 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 in John chapter 3, John chapter 7 that I've just explained to you, and John chapter 19, which was our text that we initially read, is the metamorphosis of Nicodemus. When, John, when Jesus encounters him in John chapter 3, he is a self-righteous Pharisee, working trying to be right before God, obeying the law, keeping the law, doing deeds, trying to prove his own righteousness, but a wretch, unborn. And Jesus presents to him the truth. Nick, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are the teacher of Israel, and you don't comprehend these things. Can't you go back through the scriptures and see this revelation? This revelation is all throughout the Old Testament. You're a teacher of the Old Testament, and yet you don't realize these things? I believe that seeds, the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of salvation, as he, Nicodemus had John 3, 16 preached to him by the greatest preacher to ever walk the planet, He had the gospel preached to him by Jesus. I'll be lifted up on a cross like the serpent lifted up on that staff. And anybody who believes in me will be saved and not damned. He had the gospel preached to him, and that seed that Jesus sowed in Nicodemus' heart began to work. And by the time we get to chapter 7, there's something working on the inside of of Nicodemus. He's almost believing. He's he's even willing uh, to, to risk at the, at the, 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 the ride of his own peers. He's willing to risk his reputation and come to the defense of Jesus. Fast forward to the, the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they go to Pilate and they ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Joseph... And Nicodemus come and they take the body of Jesus. They brought a hundred pounds of spices. And they brought these grave clothes, these these cloths, and they wrapped Jesus. They bound Jesus and prepared him for burial, wrapping him up in these spices, preparing his body to be buried. Something has happened in this man, Nicodemus, who is at he's at the top. 
He is an elite in the Jewish society. He is the teacher of Israel. He's on the Sanhedrin. He is a Pharisee, one of the top Pharisees. And he's willing to go and be identified with the dead body of Jesus Christ. He's willing to put it all on the line. And there, there's something in this passage that, that indicates there's a great humility that has been worked. This is a Pharisee. But there's a great humility that has been worked in this man Nicodemus's heart. He sets all of his self-righteousness aside. He's not worried about being acquainted with the Sanhedrin or, or, or the, uh, being a keeper of the law or, or that he, people would know that he's the teacher of Israel. He humbles himself. And he, being a man, went and he does what is usually the job in that Jewish culture of a woman. He's not worried about his identity. He's not worried about the fact that he's a Pharisee. He's not worried about the fact that he's the teacher of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not identifying as a man here. He's going outside of cultural norms. He's been humbled. What do you identify as? Some people look at me, the first thing they see is a white man. I don't identify as a white man. I identify as a follower of Jesus. First and foremost. You know that in Jesus there's neither Jew or Greek, male or female. In American culture, I believe that it would, it would say black or white, brown or Asian. When we're in Christ, there's only one identification that matters. We are in him, and he is in us. And that's the only identification that should matter. Coming to Jesus, when we, I believe this, when we truly have had a, a heart change, a heart transformation, when we have been born again all of those things dissipate. We're not worried about what people are going to think about us. I'm going to go and identify with the dead man. I'm identifying with the one who died on the cross, the one who hung and bled and was pierced, the one who was beaten, the one who was scorned, the one who was spat upon. I identify with him. Amen? I identify with Jesus. I identify with the mad, dead man. I want to read a couple of passages of Scripture. And then we're going to take an altar call. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We, we looked into this passage last week, the first few verses. I, I believe we looked at verses 1 through 6. Today, let's look at verse 7. Romans 6, verse 7. For he who has died. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, do you remember the words of Dr. Brasfield? 
Not only did Jesus die for us, Jesus died as us. Jesus died in my place so that I can experience eternal life. It's a doctrine, theological terms, it's known as co-crucifixion. We're going to see it in these passages over and over again, these passages that we're reading. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's the hope. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died in, to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And this is building. Remember the picture that we showed last week of baptism? When we are baptized, we are, we are, buried, we are buried with him. And we are raised into newness of life. He's building on this idea in Romans chapter 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. This is good news. Amen. We're not dominated by sin. Sin doesn't have to control our life. If we sin... We don't have an excuse. We have an advocate, but we don't have an excuse because the power of sin has been broken. If we are sinning as believers, we are choosing to sin. Stop it. Stop it. Here's revelation. You don't have to do it. You've been set free. The power of sin has been broken over your life. There's no dominion for sin in your life. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are dead. You have been buried with Jesus, and you've been resurrected with him in a newness of life. The old man has died. Amen. I identify with Christ in his death. My old man is dead, but the new man is alive on the inside of me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. If, if you... Then, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. That, that's our life. Our, we, we ought to have a look-up lifestyle. We're, we're all down here in the dirt of the world, and that's where we're finding our entertainment, our identification, our value. It's all the stuff of this world. We're calling ourselves Christian and we're stuck in the mud. Lift your perspective. Look up. Look up. We have a new mandate. We have a new citizenship. We have a new identity. Amen? Look up. We've been raised with Christ. So seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died I've already died once. 
Have you died? Have you identified with the death of Jesus Christ? Has your old man been nailed to that tree? Have you come to the cross in humble repentance and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Today I die that I might live in you. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the power of the cross. Last scripture. Here's this doctrine of co-crucifixion. Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. That was Paul's identity. He identified with Christ. He said, I am a walking dead man. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith. In the flesh I lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to ask my wife to come to the piano. We, th- th- this, this idea of the fact that we have died with Christ is all throughout the Scripture. It's, it's an important part of our Christian identity. We need to learn to identify as dead men. And I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, Paul, I, I think it's 21, but don't, don't mis, misquote me there. Paul says, I die daily. I die daily. Let me give, let me give you some encouragement, Christians. Stay dead. Stay dead. Go to the altar, lie down and die, and stay dead. Don't let the old nature rise back up. Don't let your flesh dominate you. Don't let your old carnal mindsets rule your life. Stay on the altar. Stay dead. Ravenhill, one of my favorite preachers, Leonard Ravenhill, he died in 1994, but I love to watch his old sermons. Leonard Ravenhill, he said, I hear preachers all the time saying, Jesus, hide me behind your cross. Hide me behind your cross. Hide me behind your cross. He says, I'm wondering why in the world they ever got off of the cross. That's a position that we have as believers. The old man has been put to death, crucified on the cross with Jesus Christ. But that's not where the story ends. I've been buried with him, but I rose with him when he came up out of that grave. The power, the Bible says, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in our mortal bodies as believers. And if that spirit is in us, it will quicken our mortal bodies. It will make us alive unto God. Amen? That spirit empowers us to live and be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. To do good deeds. To be the workmanship of God created unto good works. To do what God has called us to do. To be salt and light. To shine as light. In the midst of darkness. That's what the cross does for us as believers. Amen? Praise God. Let's stand together. If you're a candidate for baptism, I'm going to dismiss you. You can go down to the Fellowship Hall. Our team will be down there to take care of you, help you get ready.
a good majority of us in this room are born again. We have come to faith in Jesus. We put down our old life and we have fully embraced the new life that God has for us. But I would imagine there might be a few amongst us that haven't done that yet. You've heard the gospel preached today. There's a reality. If what I haven't said today is not true, then this book is absolutely irrelevant. Because I have taught at the core what this book teaches. This book teaches implicitly that there is no way to heaven. There's no way that we can have a relationship with God outside of Jesus. We have to come to the cross and die with him. And then be raised with him into newness of life. That's what it takes. Do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for you? If you're willing to put your confidence in Christ today, I want you to walk down to this altar. I want to meet you here. I want to pray with you. If you need to give your life to the Lord today, we want to give you that opportunity. Please come. Please come. young ladies responded. I'm going to pray with her in just a minute. Church, I want to compel you. Go all in for Jesus. Go all in. In John 3, Nicodemus is a warm in John 7, he's in the cocoon. In John 19, the butterfly has emerged. Nicodemus has been born again, I believe. They tell us, history tells us, that Nicodemus was shunned. He was removed from the Sanhedrin. There's a story in, in, in the history that says a Pharisee one day came upon a, a beggar woman and he was, going to, he was going to help her. He was going to give her, I don't know, food or aid. And he asked, ma'am, who are you? And she identified herself as the daughter of Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night. That Pharisee turned from her and refused to help her. When we follow Jesus, People will turn their backs on us. But Nicodemus went all in. He didn't care. He lost all the identities that he had. And he says, I choose to identify with this man who came 
and died for me. I want to encourage you. Go all in for Jesus. There's nothing in this world that's worth having or being a part of apart from him. Look around, folks. This world is coming undone. With all due respect to our health care workers and our health care officials, they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. With all due respect to bankers and investment and the, the Fed and all the financial people in our nation, the economy is collapsing. It's happening, happening around the world. Do you know what that is? It's the corruption of man propping itself up. There's no hope in any of it. The only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. Period. Church, it's time to get right with the Lord. It's time to go all in. Pursue Jesus. Amen. Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you to come and help me 